Hello, my name is David Runciman, and this is Talking Politics. We've reached the final episode in our American History series, and Sarah Churchwell is going to explain the remarkable story of how the politics of abortion turned around in the 1970s. How did its friends become its implacable enemies? Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. This Christmas, it's thought that counts. Give everyone you know a subscription to the LRB for just 19.99, and they'll throw in a free 2020 calendar featuring some of the best of their fantastic cover art. Find this special festive offer at lrb.me forward slash Christmas. Politics of abortion in America, deeply contentious, but in a way, people seem to make two assumptions that are broadly shared, I think. One is that it begins with Roe versus Wade. That's the sort of historical beginning point, 1973. And also that evangelical Republicans are anti-abortion. And that means that people on the other side are pro-choice. You're going to tell me, I think, that both of those assumptions are wrong. Yeah. So let's start with the first, that the role of abortion in American politics is a post-1973, shortly pre and then post. It doesn't go back in the history of the republic, but it does. Well, and I think, yes, that is the assumption, but I think there's a concomitant assumption that's also wrong, which is that in a sense it does go all the way back through the republic, but that it was just always illegal and that it only becomes an issue once Roe v. Wade overturns centuries of quote-unquote normal practice where, of course, in traditional life, abortion was illegal and Roe v. Wade overturns all of that and the evangelicals instantly go crazy. And that's the kind of standard take, I think. And they're both, both aspects of that are wrong. So there wasn't actually much law against abortion in the United States states until after the Civil War. And up until that point, what laws there were were by state, as was so often the case in America. And what laws they had tended to be on the basis of what they called quickening. And quickening was when you could feel a baby move. And before then, you were kind of fine. It was okay. They were sort of fine with it because the idea that with conception that, that the baby was kind of a seed. And so it was okay to get rid of a seed because it wasn't a live thing yet. Once it was moving, which was quickening, once the mother could feel it move, then it was a human and then there might be laws against it post-quickening. There isn't much historical documentation of abortion being viewed as a widespread problem. It isn't clear that either there was a lot of it going on or that if it was, people were just sort of taking it as this is part of life. This is what people do. So there's not kind of widespread social agitation against it until the middle of the 19th century, until after the the Civil War. And some historians argue, I think convincingly, that the Civil War was a proximate cause, at least in part. If we think about it as being a kind of parallel with the First World War in Europe, the Civil War was a war in which the United States lost 500,000 men in five years. And it was at the same time a period at which great waves of immigration began, starting with the 1840s and moving all the way up through the the turn of the 20th century, large waves of migration. And this is exactly the period starting in the 1840s that Americans start to talk about this new idea called nativism. And nativism says that the people who are already in America are superior to the new groups of immigrants who are coming in. And it's 
part of this broad new set of ideas that we now call scientific racism, right? The idea that certain races are biologically superior to other races, that justifies slavery, but it also justifies xenophobia. And it's at, at the point at which on both sides of the Atlantic, you have people starting to declare the inherent superiority of the so-called Anglo-Saxon race or the Anglo-Saxon people. And that is used to justify empire in Britain. It's used to justify manifest destiny in America and the Monroe Doctrine and other kinds of expansionist ideologies. So you have this notion that the Anglo-Saxons are inherently superior. You have then these waves of immigration coming in. You lose 500,000 men in the space of five years. And what happens, all of these come together and there starts to be, and you can see it in the political discourse of the time, a great anxiety that the Anglo-Saxon race was going to get wiped out, basically by all of the proliferating Catholics around them, that the white Anglo-Saxon Protestant, what we would now call the WASP, um, but they wouldn't have called it that, but that basically the wasps are going to be are going to die out. And part of this is because even at that point, middle class white women were starting to try to exercise certain kinds of control over, you know, how many children they were going to have. And there were, of course, great debates about contraception and about other you know means of trying to control your fertility rate. And what happened over the course of the 19th century in the United States is that fertility rate for white people fell dramatically. So from seven children in 1800 to 3.6 children per household by 1900. And this was viewed with great alarm by the people who thought that the Anglo-Saxon race needed to protect itself and that nativist forces needed to control the United States. You've got to have more white babies uh, to stay in charge. Um, and by the turn of the 19th century, and of course, this is the time as well with scientific racism, the idea of eugenics, that you would breed better people. So breeding becomes of great importance, human breeding, selective breeding in a post-Darwinian context. All of these ideas come together to suggest that what we need are the best people breeding the right children. And so therefore, you have to control women's reproduction in ways that just hadn't quite been thought of in the same way before. And by the turn of the 20th century, you have scientific racists in America, lecturers, professors, talking about what they called race suicide. And race suicide was explicitly at the same time as women were trying to get the vote. So it's happening right in the 19-teens and running up to the 19th Amendment in 1919, 1920, and afterwards, when women get the vote, white women get the vote, or white women have are able to exercise the vote, to be specific about it, they start really getting agitated about this idea of race suicide and saying if white women, if the best white women, the most educated white women, though Anglo-Saxon white women do not protect the race, then the race will die out and therefore it is women's obligation. It's the duty to the race to stay home and have babies. And it's in that period that you start to see the first widespread campaigning against abortion to try to ensure that women's white women's fertility rates stay high. And yet, on that account, it does fit a story in which being opposed to abortion goes along with being a Protestant Christian. Mm. And the anxiety was because Catholics who are inherently against abortion were having more children. Exactly. And this is a demographic population argument. By the time we get into the 1960s and the 1970s, when we are going to see eventually Roe versus Wade and its political consequences. Some of that fear has gone away, the fear that this is going to become an overwhelmingly Catholic country. And what you see, in fact, is that at the level of politics, Republicans and evangelical Christians are not 
anti-abortion, certainly relative to other groups, including Catholics. Mm. And this primarily was, Catholics. Primarily yeah. Catholics. And this was news to me that the case was being made by politicians like Richard Nixon and Ronald Reagan, mm -hmm. that abortion was a privacy issue and anti-abortion was a Catholic yeah. political position. It's mind-blowing. <laughs> mind so what we need to remember, again, and this is always so confusing about the realignment of the political parties in the 20th century, but the Democrats, as increasingly across the 20th century, the party of the immigrant community were the Catholic party. So a JFK is a Democrat, and that's partly because he's a Catholic. And so it's the it's the Irish immigrant and the Italian immigrant community, and they're overwhelmingly urban, of course, that are voting Democrats. So traditionally, the Democrats have to pander to the Catholic vote. And so what you find in ways that, as you say, are kind of mind-blowing for us, or you find Democrat political candidates saying that they believe in the sanctity of life and in you know pro-life positions because they want to make sure that their Catholic constituents are happy. Evangelicals at this stage are not particularly politically active. In many ways, they've kind of opted out. They don't like this whole secular thing that's happening anyway, and they're sort of pursuing their own ends, as it were. There were periods in which they were more politically active in the 1920s and 1930s, and then they kind of drop out of sight for a while. And for various reasons, they're, they're just not politically active. And we have a lot of evidence of this now. Increasingly, it's coming to light. Conservatives were very conscious of this and trying to figure out how to rally evangelicals around some cause. And some of the evangelical, there were even evangelical activists, of course, and they were sort of floating trial balloons and kind of focus groups and trying to figure out what would be the thing that would finally politicize evangelicals and would get them to vote in one way or another. And of course, they wanted them to vote with the conservatives. And so what you get is you know, Nixon's a Quaker. Nixon starts out being really pretty unconcerned about the question of abortion until he starts to hear that that his constituency isn't liking it and it's starting to to become an issue. But, you know, Roe v. Wade was passed on a right to privacy issue, but also because it was largely seen, again, as something that mostly white middle class families were doing sort of in the privacy of their own home. And Republicans were kind of happy to keep that kind of what white middle class people do in their own homes is their own business was kind of the standard presumption. One of the ways that uh, America has historically negotiated these socially tricky issues is by leaving them down to state and local governments to decide for themselves. And that has managed a lot of social conflict over the years. So abortion was one of those where even after these these ideas of race suicide started to drop by the wayside, they still just left it kind of on a state basis. So there were increasing abortion laws, but they weren't necessarily enacted. And there were very few prosecutions. And it was sort of live and let live to a great degree. Roe v. Wade was seen to have overstepped the bounds in important ways because it was a constitutional amendment that overturned all of those state laws. For certain social conservatives, that was, and also political conservatives, that was an overstepping of the federal government of constitutional law. And they felt very strongly that on a legal basis and political basis, that should not stand. And then there was a feeling that what had been left to people in the privacy of their own homes was now suddenly the state intruding on those choices. And there was some pushback on that basis. But it is not historically true that evangelicals suddenly became politicized because they objected to the passage of Roe v. Wade. The history doesn't bear that out. And just to give some context to what has to be explained here, we are talking in the space of actually probably inside 10 years, mm -hmm. a political climate in which not just before Roe v. Wade, but immediately after Roe v. Wade, a politician like Edward Kennedy, Teddy Kennedy, 
is anti-abortion. And a politician like Ronald Reagan, very broadly speaking, is pro-choice. And within 10 years, those positions have completely flipped. Teddy Kennedy becomes the liberal standard bearer, and this then becomes the liberal cause, pro-choice. It has to go beyond his Catholicism, which has to become irrelevant in that context. And Reagan, as a president who's been elected in large part, thanks to the support of evangelical Christians, is at the head of a movement which is increasingly going to push back against Roe v. Wade to this day. And this happens so quickly... And it's an extraordinary political switch. It requires a lot of political, the polite word would be entrepreneurship, on the part of people trying to mobilize different groups. And it, as always with American politics, it cuts across race. So how do we we explain this, that Teddy Kennedy and Ronald Reagan flip sides... Within a couple of years. Within a couple (laughs) of years on an issue which is, for many people, still an issue of morality, not politics, or religion, not politics. Well, except that the answer to why the politicians did it is pure politics, as we can see, as clearly clearly it was. And it had to be for them to make that decision, which in and of itself is interesting that this subject, which for so many people now is the lightning rod moral issue, and everybody thinks that it has always been such, was so cynically political that they were swapping sides like it was a poker game. Who can win the abortion vote and who can get, you know, and remember also that this is all taking place place at the same time as Watergate. So it was all really complicated, right? So because literally Roe v. Wade happens in 1973 and Watergate starts to to gain traction right at that point. There's a lot of noise at the time as people are trying to figure out where they can actually consolidate their votes. And it's an incredibly complicated story and there and there are different versions of it. There is certainly some historical evidence of an evangelical reaction against Roe v. Wade. So I don't want to suggest that there was none or that it was purely cynical, but there's a lot of evidence that it was a pretty cynical decision. And there have been some historians who've been working on the papers of the evangelicals, of Jerry Falwell after he died, and of course he left them at his schools, and some conservative activists, but also some of Nixon's aides and advisors and some of Reagan's aides and advisors. So we have the paper. And again, you know, historians are always delighted when people leave the receipts for us. And so there is evidence of this. They had these conversations very explicitly behind closed doors, as it were, and now we can open the doors and and see those. So, for example, one historian has, has shown that in 1968, in a magazine called Christianity Today, which was the magazine of evangelicalism, in 1968, five years before Roe v. Wade, they did not characterize abortion as sinful, but said that ending a pregnancy was a matter of individual health, family welfare, and social responsibility. Responsibility. And that's the evangelical magazine in 1968. And yet by 1978, as you say, abortion is the thing that all evangelicals are rallying around and the Christian right is rallying around. What's happened is that all of these papers that I mentioned, so both the the papers of the evangelicals and of the politicians who were watching them with a close eye, is that it turns out that this hinges not on the rights of women over their own bodies, although it is now that, but it it didn't start out that way. And as you said a minute ago, as with so many things in American history, it actually starts with race. What happened was that after the landmark case of Brown v. Board of Education, which was what desegregated the American schools, a bunch of white Christian evangelicals founded single race, what they called Christian academies that were whites only as a way to get around the desegregation of the schools. And they felt that that was the thing that was the most important to them. They wanted these whites-only Christian academies. And 
where they made their mistake, or actually where they made a mistake for women, it turns out, because abortion would be the end result of all of this, but where they made the mistake politically was that they claimed tax-exempt status for these segregated Christian academies. And the IRS eventually came after them. And they said, if these are segregated academies, you can't have tax, in fact, that's illegal, and you can't have tax-exempt status for them. And there was a landmark case called Green v. Kennedy in 1970 when they simply said, you can't do this. And so this is happening at the same time, right, which we have to bear in mind. So that's in 1970, and they found that it was against the the Title VI Act of the Civil Rights Act. So it's against the civil rights law and that they're not charitable organizations and they can't do this. But it took them another five years as the IRS kept fighting to kind of push them to try to desegregate the schools. And by 76, 77, they all know that this is an issue for social conservatives, but they realize that they can't, even then they know that they can't come out and say, well, we're we're going to fight on behalf of racial segregation. So basically what they do is they have this conversation behind closed doors where they say, look, we all know it's about segregation, but what we're going to do is we're going to gain power and we're going to retain power by finding the thing that we can get people to vote on the basis of. And it turned out they found out through a kind of accidental combination of a few local political races, including Bob Dole's. Um, there were one or two others. There was Hubert Humphrey. It became clear that audiences were responding to debates around abortion, and they started to realize that that was tipping electoral outcomes at the same time that they were searching for whatever the the lightning rod issue would be that they could unite social conservatives around, and they started to realize that it would be abortion. And so it's basically a proxy. It's a way for them to fight back against, again, the federal government intruding in what they saw as their own right to have white-only academies, and what they want to do is to claim political power, fight back on that basis so that they can run the country the way they think it needs to be run. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. If, as you say, in, in that Christian magazine from the late 60s, the case was made that abortion is not an issue for us, and insofar as it is, it's a matter of privacy. I think that the list was privacy, health, and social responsibility, each of which can be presented as a broadly conservative theme. The new strategy requires a different set of themes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but conservative themes. And, of course, then it does become a moral religious issue. So the thing about privacy, health, and social responsibilities, those are kind of pragmatic, maybe moral, but broadly political themes. Abortion has to be turned into something for political reasons right. that looks as though it's above politics and it becomes about the right to life of the unborn child. Exactly. But what's driving it, I feel like I didn't say it very clearly because it is so complicated the way they did this trade-off, but what's driving it is their sense after the decision about the Christian academies that this increasingly progressive government, federal government, and, and what court, they saw, and court, that it could interfere in Christian life, that it would interfere in their right to decide to control their communities the way they saw fit. And for them, these are all sort of caught up together as their right to be Christians and to lead a Christian life as they decided to do it, and that government interference cannot be brooked, but they can't say we can't have government interference 
interference on this issue of racial segregation, but they can say we won't stand for government interference on this issue, which happened simultaneously, which was Roe v. Wade. The oddity is almost you could say that privacy switches here too. So it moves from the late 1960s evangelical version, which is privacy is about a woman's right to choose in relation to her body. And it becomes about a community's right to choose over a woman's body. But these are still broadly about resisting government interference. It's just the level at which the resistance happens. It moves from the individual to something more like the social or religious group. But it can still be a keep out of our way, keep off our backs, stop interfering, stop poking your nose in. But the level means that the losers, if that's how we want to put it, are individual women. Exactly. Exactly. And that's what I meant about saying in a minute ago that it was kind of ironic that the, I mean, it is ironic, right, that the ways in which this very patriarchal community is determined to maintain its vision of what America should look like does go back to the 19th century, which is why that genealogy is an important one to understand and that context is an important one to understand. This is still about broadly white Anglo-Saxon Protestants saying we're supposed to be the ones deciding how things are going to work here and realizing that by choosing to be unactive in government at various points that they were losing their chance to to maintain that kind of control. And, you know, and look, we don't want to overstate it. I mean, the way in which race played a role in this is is very under-discussed and incredibly important, and it's very real and it's beyond dispute. As I say, there's an enormous amount of evidence to show that this was very much a conscious decision on their parts and a cynical one to play these things off against each other. But it is true also that in the five years following Roe v. Wade, many social conservatives became increasingly anxious about what they saw as a rise of kind of frivolous abortion. So suddenly they see what had been successfully kept either just, you know, beneath the surface and you just didn't know it was happening and it was underreported and all of those things. Or also that because it had become easier, women had and safer, um, women had started doing it more and more openly. And that did cause anxiety for social conservatives. But they also saw it as part of where before, as I say, it had been this kind of thing that just happened from their point of view, either to the lower classes and we don't worry about them too much. And with middle class people, it happened with the permission of the husband. And so it was all kind of it's their right to do what they want to do. But now suddenly, it becomes colored by this whole wave of feminist energy and by the whole second wave feminist movement. So suddenly women really wanting to work outside of the home, really demanding sexual and economic freedoms, demanding their right to uh, exercise the franchise in more and more powerful ways, demanding their role as leaders in government, fighting against professional discrimination, fighting for equal pay, um, the fighting for the ERA, the Equal Rights Amendment, which is starting to happen at the same time. So for them, this is all part of, you know, kind of uppity women needing to know their place. And it's, it's one thing to get an abortion with your husband's permission when you're nicely married in the sanctity of your own home. It's quite another thing for all of these women to be running around having sex with whoever they want to and having abortions at will, quote unquote, you know, voluntarily. And so for them, that's, you know, kind of a horse of another color, as it were. And that starts to shift their attitudes to it as well. For one of these political switches to happen, both sides have to flip. So as I say, it's not just that Reagan flips, but Kennedy flips too. As you said, the Democrats were, for much of the 20th century, the party of immigrants, and that meant primarily Catholic immigrants. So for this switch to happen on that side, it also has to be that that has to be now downplayed relative to becoming the party of women, Mm -hmm. which the Democrats have been in the last generation, the party of African-Americans. Again, that switch, the the bad guys in the Civil War become this extraordinary switch across all of these different dimensions. But this is part of what's playing out here too. As one side moves, 
the other side also moves. Has to move. And it's it's a mobilization issue on both sides too. But therefore, for the Democrats, being anti-abortion is no longer worth it because of the, the mobilization potential around these new divides. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and, and basically the Catholic vote is no longer what's driving their electoral chances. So, Notwithstanding the fact, of course, there is still massive Catholic immigration from Latin America through Mexico. Yeah, so it's absolutely. not just the, you know, the European story has dried up, as it were, but yeah. as we were talking to Gary about in an earlier episode, we're still, we've still got mass migration yeah, and, then, and then deportation. Uh, yeah, indeed. And you've also got mass disfranchisement of those exact waves of immigrants. The Dreamer Act was only, the DACA was only passed under Obama. You've got all of these efforts to disfranchise those brown people and that what they're calling the brownification of America, all of the resistances to that and all of the pushback against Johnson's uh, Moral Society and the Migration Reform Act. And just to say, to fit into the story that Gary Gerstle told us, it's because it's not an electoral issue because a lot of this is illegal immigration, as you say. And that's the crucial difference with the earlier story where it is legal and therefore enfranchised immigration. Yeah, exactly. And it's important to say that it was legal because it wasn't illegal, if you see what I mean, because there were almost no laws against immigration at that point. So we need to bear that in mind, too, because people now talk about their ancestors having come over legally when there were almost no laws against coming over at all. So it was just moot. They just arrived. Exactly. So the Democrats, it is at this point that they align themselves as the progressive party in a way that they had not been consistently up until that point. And that's really when our modern sense of left and right of progressive and conservative coalesces is in this point. It's also true that that the Republicans were determined to defeat Carter at almost any cost, which is funny, again, because you might think that Carter would be the one who would be fighting on the side of pro-life because he was a devout Southern Baptist. He thought abortion was immoral. He recognized that that was not a position that he could take in running for president. But again, because Carter was seen as a progressive who was coming after their prerogatives, they were determined to defeat him at any cost. And abortion became one of the ways that they could do that with Reagan because Reagan was an opportunist enough politically, as many as we're saying, as many of these politicians were, that they would go where the, where the wind of their electorate was blowing. So that switch in the 1970s really has shaped a lot of American politics since. And I think what's most dramatic about it is its speed. And now the battle lines look really entrenched. And we may be moving, who knows, to the repeal of Roe versus Wade as the character of the Supreme Court potentially changes. A lot hinges on the next presidential election for that very reason. It's worth remembering these dramatic switches are possible. But the new division does look deeply entrenched along these lines. It's, in a sense, we are still in 1982 and getting back to or finding a new version of 1972 looks incredibly hard. Well, that's why I think it's so important to tell these historical stories because whichever side of the battle, and it is a battle right now, that you see yourself as being on, it's so entrenched that people tend to think "'twas ever thus as well. And I think it's really important to understand that history to see how contingent it is. And therefore, as you say, that people's positions change. So the idea that this is some great moral crusade is just a nonsense historically because you can see all of the opportunistic reasons why they made the choices that they made. As I say, they were explicit about them. So to recognize that is to push back against some of the pious claims about the moral imperative that is driving all of this. But you can't push back too far because you actually are also talking about now 30 years of an educational system in which these people have been raised with this idea and it is a 
profoundly, deeply held conviction that they truly believe. And the thing that I, I find myself telling Europeans a lot of the time when they ask me in bafflement, you know, why are these people voting for Trump? And how can people who call themselves Christians be voting for Trump? And the answer is that there are a great many of them, this is anecdotal, but there's a lot of, of self-reporting suggesting that this is a, a significant factor in the in the election and the support of Trump, is that, you know, these people aren't stupid and they're not dupes. It's not that they can't see that he's awful in all the ways that he's awful. It's that they are single issue voters. And this issue is so important to them that all the rest of it be damned. And all they care about are getting judges on the court who will stop abortion from happening because they now truly believe that this is a question about murder and they truly believe that it is a moral issue and that it is a black and white moral issue from their point of view. So part of it is understanding that we've gone from a belief that was pretty casually held by a lot of people. I mean, they weren't for it, but it didn't seem to be that much of an issue. Of course, what it really comes back to is, as with the 19th Amendment and indeed to the battles between the 15th and the 19th Amendment and arguments about race suicide and all of that, is about the ability of individuals within a given society to control their own bodies, which is the argument about emancipation. It's the argument about, of, you know, from, I mean, of the slaves, right? It's about saying as an individual, you're allowed to be self-determining and from that side of the argument to be politically autonomous and therefore to have bodily autonomy as well. And the argument about slavery related to that too, which is why the suffragists actually also had arguments against, the original ones also had arguments against abortion for complicated reasons. But None of this stuff lines up neatly, right? There are many historians pointing out um, Kevin Cruz and Julian Zelizer just recently wrote a book uh, called, I think, Fault Lines, which talks about how American history has shifted since 1973. And they choose 1973 as their starting point, both because of Watergate and because of Roe v. Wade. And it's a really compelling argument. America has changed a great deal in that period. But it's also as if then we can't see beyond 1973. And so we just think that that's our whole history. And so to say, actually, we've just inherited this quite recent history that we think is sort of naturalized and inevitable, and it's none of those things. Are we currently in a position where we're going to see a kind of 1973 to 1978 realignment, where suddenly everybody starts swapping around? I doubt that very much indeed. And in a way, what makes 1972 distant, it's not that people didn't have passionately held beliefs in 1972. And, but some of the things that were passionate then would seem very remote to us now. The arguments about the Vietnam War, you know, the relationship of the draft as it had been to people's freedom and so on. It's very hard to get people exercised about that now. It's not that they were casual then and now we are passionately divided. It's just we are divided on different things. Absolutely. What was casual for them has become divisive for us and what was divisive for them has become casual for precisely, us. Precisely. And I wasn't trying to suggest that they were that they were more casual then, but that that particular set of beliefs was not one that a lot of, it wasn't an electoral issue. It wasn't things that people were polling on the basis of, you know, sort of the way that people point out now that five years ago, Brexit was not even in people's top five concerns. And now it is the thing that divides the British electorate, right? And it's kind of similar in that sense. So it's not to say that the, that the convictions are less passionate, as you rightly say. It's that that wasn't one of them. And now it's unimaginable that abortion wouldn't be one of the lightning rod issues. And yet it just simply wasn't one. People just kind of got on with things to a great degree. But as I say, it actually really, it is true that it does come down to this question about patriarchy to women's rights, to women's autonomy, and what your view is of that question, how much right you think 
women have over their own bodies, including their right to decide what to do with an unborn child. And I say that, I hope neutrally, I mean that neutrally, because there are people who will say women's rights stop at that point because they believe that that is exercising the right over another human being. And I'm not saying that that is an illegitimate position. I'm saying that it has gone from being one that not very many people made on an, uh, they weren't making it on an activist basis. They weren't campaigning on the basis of it. It's interesting to note that the earliest campaigners against abortion were doctors. They, they actually would do it on the basis of the health of the mother. So sort of reverse argument from what we have now. Although historians point out, speaking of historical ironies, that abortions were statistically considerably safer than childbirth for women in the 19th century. We really hope you've enjoyed this series of American histories as much as we enjoyed making them. Links to all of the reading and extra material will be available with our show notes, or you can find it on Twitter at tppodcast underscore. For our next episode, we are going to get back to what we do most weeks. It'll be me and Helen and a cup of coffee trying to make sense of what's going on now. My name is David Runciman, and we've been Talking Politics. Talking Politics.